Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Unlikable Female Characters, the podcast featuring feminist thriller writers in conversation about female characters who don't give a damn if you like them. I'm Lane Fargo, and I'm here with Kristen LaPianca. Hello. And we are also joined today by Bethany C. Morrow. Bethany is an indie bestselling author who writes for adult and young adult audiences in genres ranging from speculative literary to contemporary fantasy to historical. She is the author of the novels Mem and A Song Below Water, as well as the editor contributor uh, to the young adult anthology Take the Mic. Her latest book, the social horror novel Cherish Farah, came out earlier this month. Uh, Welcome to the show, Bethany. Thank you guys for having me. This book is so fascinating. It's like nothing I've ever read. (laughs) And I would love if you could just give a little summary of it for our listeners who might not have had a chance to pick up a copy yet. So being thriller writers and readers, you, I'm sure, understand that I can give you an idea of the story you think you're reading. Yes. (laughs) But not the story you're actually reading. Um, Uh (laughs) So Cherish Farah is about, well, it's told from the perspective of Farah, who is a 17-year-old in biological age only. Um, And she is one of two Black girls in this country club community. She is, however, the only one with Black parents because her best friend Cherish is a transracial adoptee who has been adopted um, from a very, very young age by the Whitmans, who are a white, very affluent couple who also happen to be very socially aware and very um, progressive and very intentional about raising a Black daughter. But being, as they are still, a white, affluent couple, they have created in Cherish something like a void that uh, Farah refers to as WGS or white girl spoiled. They've given her this kind of life and privilege and um, arrested development that is usually only sort of um, seen in, in white children. And so because Cherish is a black girl, it, it means that she really has no center and because of who Farah is, she recognizes that as a void that she can uniquely fill. Um, and someone who's really into sort of control and ownership is a it, it makes her and Cherish very, very close, um, troublingly close from a very young age. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Yeah, that's a great summary. I mean, I will say, and that's the great thing about books like this, but it's like, wherever you think this is going, you don't know. Wherever you think this is going, you're wrong. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love that you, you described um, Farah as being who she is. Can you tell us a little bit about who exactly Farah is and what is, what is her, what's her deal? Farah is a budding psychopath. So, um, and I mean, like literally, um, I, I think that when people refuse to accept that, it makes the rest of the story kind of confusing because it sort of only makes sense if you if you understand exactly who she is. And there's a there's actually a scene early on in the book where Cherish and Farah are eavesdropping on their mothers, having a conversation on Brianne Whitman, who's the white mother, and Nicole Turner, which is Farah's mother. And Nicole Turner is trying to sort of confess um, a concern that she has about Farah. She's trying to, I don't even know if she's trying to warn Brienne so much as she's kind of just trying to talk about something that's troubling her uh, with one of her closest friends. But what we see is that, and what Farah sees more importantly, is that Brienne is incapable of seeing her. She's incapable of, of like understanding what Nicole is describing. And it's usually because we have really, we have like a pendulum of how we see black girls. And on one side is the virulent, openly racist um, adultification of teenage black girls in which they're villains and they're fast and they're, you know, sexual and they're whatever. And on the other progressive side is their baby victims. Um, And so either one of those is false. Either one of those is dehumanizing because it doesn't allow people to be real multi-dimensional fully fleshed out people with autonomy and motives and thoughts just like just like you so it might seem like you know this is like oh that's so great because she sees that they need to be taken care of well yeah but she doesn't she she doesn't see the person standing in front of her so um farah is exactly who she says she is (laughs) (laughs) and there is a there is a consequence to the anti-blackness that leads to an inability to accept that. Mm, yeah. yeah. I think uh, psychopaths always make really fascinating narrators because, I mean, we're all unreliable narrators, right? Like whoever's narrating a book is Wait a unreliable. Have you said that before? Do you believe, like, I'm I'm sorry, you're the only other person on this entire tour who has <laughs> said that and they've constantly asked me, do you think she's unreliable? And I'm like, Every narrator is yeah. <laughs> that seems obvious. Right. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Obvious, right? <laughs> yeah, because we're all like filtering through our own perspectives and our life experiences. Oh my god! And, yeah. yeah, Lane, Absolutely. I can't. I just can't tell you how much it means to me. <laughs> and if you told me that you got your bachelor's in sociology too, I'd be like, at least that goes to explain some of it because I don't understand why that is a difficult concept for people to like just accept that you are literally like my imagination wasn't developed in a in a vacuum and neither was yours so the way that I write and the way that you read are impacted by your stuff so nobody (laughs) nobody is reliable there's a difference though between being sinister or not that's to me what what we have to know as readers, not if our narrator is unreliable, but if they're intentionally unreliable, if they're, if they're manipulative or malicious, that's different. But I'm, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be this um, shocked that, that you said exactly what I've been saying all morning, but 
<laughs> I was just a theater major, but I guess I mean theater. Oh, okay. Always. There's the overlap too, though, because there's the there people study. There's you know, there's the character interrogation and and preparation and stuff that you do for. It, there are certain things that require you to be to be um, interrogative and and to be introspective, but also be able to to acknowledge and study other people and awareness of other people and, and why people do the things they do. So I still see the connection. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, I love a psychopathic narrator because my last book had sort of a sociopath narrator. She's a serial killer. And I think another thing readers don't get about that kind of narrator sometimes is part of being a psychopath or a sociopath is you have this like outsized uh view of like your own yes like you know what's going on and you're yes. right and so they'll be like well she's not as smart as she thinks she is and I'm like yes exactly like exactly that's, right. that's the point that's the yeah point. yeah yeah so I saw that in Farah because she is um like she thinks she knows what's going on in every situation and she understands all of the power dynamics and she's like in control she's got it and then throughout the book you see how much that's not true like she certainly understands more than the average teenage girl would oh, she's very intelligent but like she's making a lot of assumptions based on the way her brain works and that, that was very fascinating mm -hmm. a little trick you did in the narration I love that <laughs> well and there's also not just you know, we, we, we see every, we see every um, interaction with her and then we hear her interpret it. So uh, something that I, and I'm, I can't apologize guys, cause I did it on purpose. Okay. But <laughs> something that I realized that readers are struggling with is the fact that it's like, wait, am I wrong? Is she okay? Wait, I didn't see it that way. Like, is that, I'm like, well, you have to allow for somebody to be extremely cunning and extremely strategic and extremely intelligent and also have blind spots or also mm. be wrong about something. You have to allow for them to be right, but you do have to allow for them to be wrong. And that puts a lot, you know, what I think it is, is that a lot of readers are used to just sort of trusting and going along with the, the perspective character, the narrator, and you, you simply cannot, you do not get to turn your brain off with Farah. You have to, <laughs> you have to stay alert because she's going to, you're going to see what happened. She's going to tell you what happened. And if there's a disparity or something like, is that a you thing or is that a her thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's something that's like, there's something disorienting about that. That's like really compelling because it's like you kind of feel like am I insane is, am like, I like am I is it me like is right. I, like, is it me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> and like you know we're it's a it's a, a social horror novel and when you talk about things that are scary like what's scarier than wondering if you're going insane <laughs> like well, yeah and then the social horror aspect of it of course is like the it's the social context of the society in which we live the social institutions and everything and what i love about that as a genre is it does not allow for the reader to pretend to not understand things um, the things that uh, that our society teaches you to pretend you don't see or pretend you don't understand if that were true you wouldn't even under you wouldn't get the book like if that were true you wouldn't even enjoy the book so it's like the fact that you if you enjoy it 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 tells on you. Like right. you, you're aware of of the context at, at work here. You're aware of the institutions at play here. Mm -hmm. I watched um, some of the YouTube videos that you did for your publisher. They sent those along with the like pitch for this, and they were really interesting. Um, one thing I was wondering if we could touch on here was you were talking about horror as um, a collaboration between the writer and the reader. Could you like 
I don't know, talk a little bit about that. I just thought that was so fascinating. Yeah, I was talking about it in terms of, so it, it you know, when, when people tell me that something is disturbing, that anything I've written is disturbing. And they've been telling me this since Mim. And um, so I was telling you guys about my dearly beloved um, Amy Suter Clark. And one of the things that probably drives her nuts is the fact that she will tell me something is troubling. And I'm like, is it? And then like, <laughs> other people will tell me something I've written is troubling. And I'm like, is it? Because I'm just like, are we sure that this is trouble? But the reason is because what troubles me um, in terms of like, oh, that's gross. Like, or what bothers me, I should say, is like gore and and body horror and stuff because because you're doing it on purpose. Like you're showing me a full picture of something that is intended to be upsetting, is intended to to look destructive and and violent. And a there's a laziness to it that doesn't mean it's not well done ever, but there's a laziness to it because it doesn't require anything of me except to be a human and know what blood looks like. So. I always, I always shy away from that sort of thing. I love psychological stuff. I love psychological thrillers. And so it's a kind of, I guess it's a kind of troubling that I really love. So when somebody says that my stuff is troubling, I, I guess I don't know. It just doesn't register to me that way. I don't know. I don't know how to explain that part. But anyway, um, like my first novel, Mem, which is a um, speculative literary and has historical elements and stuff. And I remember certain things about the story and then people would be like, well, you know, it was troubling as well. It had its troubling moments. And I'm like, it did like that's I don't know, um, because the thing that that I shy away from that I don't really enjoy, um, I don't really watch a lot of horror because I don't like gore, because I don't like I don't like you just showing me explicitly in action a thing that I already know is upsetting. So the reason that I like social horror and psychological thrillers is because it strategically implants thoughts and concerns based on what it understands of you, the viewer, based on what it understands of the culture and the society that you are from and familiar with, right? And so instead of explicitly showing you something that's going to upset you in the moment. And then largely the, the, the impact, it's not something that people are going to talk about for, for weeks after they've seen it. Right. Because it upset me in the moment because it was supposed to, you showed me something upsetting. Psychological thrillers tease something that already exists in your, in your awareness already exists in your mind and leave space for you to fill in the blanks. And therefore is a collaborative effort. It's extremely personal to what about that context troubles you and that also means that you cannot get away from it as easily <laughs> um, because you're part, you're part of its construction. And it also, of course, is that that in itself makes it so cunning and so sociologically clever because it, you have to have a true awareness of the audience. You have to truly understand the culture that they're in and what they know, even the things they deny knowing. Um, social horror is sort of the pitch perfect genre because of that, because it's, you can deny in, in conversation awareness of something or, oh, I just didn't know. I just had never been exposed to blah, blah, blah. I know how soci socialization works. So I know that can't be true. If I'm aware of it and it's observable and it's a lived experience, I know you've seen it. Whether you wanted to uh, acknowledge it or not, and whether you have a choice and a privilege to decide not to is something else entirely. But I know you saw it. So social horror requires that you know this in order to experience it and in order to enjoy it. 
Um, and like I said, it tells on it tells on the audience. Um, and I absolutely love that because it is collaborative and it is it is very contextual. Yeah, and it does stick with you longer because it's like if it's something that's in your world, whether you're you already like, understood. Yeah. And yeah. then when you see it again, it just sticks with you. It's going to like take you back to that experience of, right. of reading that book or watching that movie or you can't avoid it. Uh, yeah, totally. I think that's really interesting because it like as a as a writer that requires like having more respect for your audience and yeah. knowing knowing that like in order for them to experience this fully, they have to they can't just sit there and passively enjoy something. There are plenty of, you know, good horror movies and you know, good horror novels, but the idea of like things that are gross or things that are like startling, that's not the same thing as things that are scary and things that right. like will trouble you and really stick with you. And right. I think that like there's there's a really important difference there. Like if you want to just like sit there and be like thrilled and chilled and ooh, I'm you know titillated for 90 minutes or whatever, like like it's laughter. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. But then if you want to like sort of dig deeper and like interrogate some of these social ideas like that's definitely much scarier than anything just right. like popping out of from behind a, a corner or something well, because you, when you know when you put this book down that truth is still going to be true right mm -hmm. when you put this book down that the horror is based in the society that you live in that horror is real yeah, it's not like, oh, thank goodness that's over. Like I right. enjoyed like, I enjoyed no. <laughs> Yeah. This, this is this is really this is this is the world that you actually live in. Are some of the um scenarios heightened or um who knows? Because we don't know what everybody's doing. Um <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Is that? we can't we cannot be sure. But yeah, that's that's the thing is that it's it's literally it's indicting and it's and it's telling on society, but it's also making it where you don't get to walk away from this now and go back to pretending you don't know. Mm -hmm. And to go back to my theater background, <laughs> it doesn't give you that catharsis like a slasher movie or something right. where like the killer is defeated. It's like right. it's just going to continue happening, even if um, like in Get Out, you know, Chris gets away at the end, but nothing that he's been dealing with it, like all of those people who are participating in that are still out there. All of the forces that led to it are still out there. Like he individually got away and like maybe just for now, like he might still maybe be just for now because this yeah. is a network, right? This the reason this is a horror is because it's based on white supremacy and this um this ability, first of all, to operate clandestinely. So the biggest horror of 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 that sort of scenario is you don't know how many people are involved in this. Yeah. You don't know how many people are actively doing this. That's why there's no such thing as like closing the book and be like, okay, well that story is over. Yes. But the world is intact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good times. <laughs> <laughs> I totally get what you're saying too, about like people telling you your work is disturbing and being like, is it? I feel like we all, like any of us who writes anything sort of crime adjacent or horror adjacent, we all have very broken. <laughs> yes, yeah. Is so is it's terrible. And even when I say like, I don't watch horror um, and I don't, you know, it's like, Oh, I've, I've never been into horror. I, then I think of, what I did used to watch and I always and I also I guess I should say I don't watch horror socially because I always watched it alone um this mm. is gonna this is like more troubling the more I think about this um <laughs> so I don't know if you guys have ever heard of okay spiritual thrillers I was always really big into um because I'm not like horribly afraid of humans but um <laughs> there were like lost souls fallen um 
oh, Event Horizon, which mm. I don't know how I've been going around saying I don't like horror all of these years because I watched just a trailer for Event Horizon and remembered like what that what's actually in that movie. And I used to watch that movie like in high school at night when if everybody was gone except for me. For some reason, I would watch Event Horizon. Um, just <laughs> like your comfort movie. Event Horizon. Yeah, and then like Children of the Stairs, um, Tales from the Hood. Um, I, I not Candyman. I did not. I did not watch that by myself um, because <laughs> that would have just been ridiculous. Um, but yeah, when I, so, so it's really strange. Cause I guess I have to think about it in the way that I, the way that I feel like people are typically talking about horror, which is like, oh, let's go do this fun thing. Let's go to the theater. And, but, and that's not, that to me is like, what are you, why do you like this? Like what's going on? But if I think about like, I don't know, I don't know how to, um, categorize what I was using horror for. I just know that it was like, it was a very personal thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's troubling. Anyway, let's pretend <laughs> I didn't say that stuff. <laughs> I tend to like to watch horror at home. I don't usually like to go see it in a theater. There's something about just knowing I'm in my own space or that I could turn it off if I want. I mean, I guess I could leave the theater if I was. It feels, it feels too much space, I think. like, And that's the way I'm, I only think that now, I think, because with the pandemic, I've I've adopted all these little idiosyncrasies which is like I can't usually I if I want to watch something and not have to pause it a million times no matter what the genre I have to like have headphones and watching it on the laptop I have to like make it small I have to like constrain it somehow mm. I can't just like have it out in the room taking up all of the space I don't know how that makes sense but that's like what's been happening and I and I think about the times that I have gone to the theater to see things like okay Resident Evil uh the first Resident Evil um, which is Mila's fault because I was like, well, I have to try. Um, <laughs> and I didn't walk out, but I did turn totally toward the wall. And then the cell, mm. I tried to see that in the theater twice and I walked out twice. Wow. Okay. Man, <laughs> I haven't thought about that movie in forever. <laughs> and I've never finished it. And it's all, I always got to the same part and it was the troubling thing was the the irrationality of calling out for her father, one of the victims, as she was like, the water kept raising, so she's drowning. And the irrationality of calling out for one of your parents when you know they're not there hmm. was so upsetting to me that I was like, no, hmm. <laughs> I can't, I can't deal with this. <laughs> Okay, so we are having some technical difficulties and we have lost Kristen. So she may like pop back in like a jump scare in a horror movie at any moment. <laughs> but until then, Bethany and I are just going to keep talking. So um, Bethany, I would love to ask you about, you write in so many different genres and categories. And I am just fascinated by this because I like do not have an imagination like that. I feel like I just keep writing the same book over and over. So <laughs> like where how do you come up with these ideas how do you decide like which whether they're YA or adults or yeah just I would love to hear about that yeah I always follow the concept and character so I before you know before Cherish Fair I'd never written technically a social horror before um before A Song Below Water I'd never written contemporary fantasy um and I would have told you that I wrote speculative literary fiction because that's the majority or science fiction straight science fiction because that's what I had always written before but I am really I, I know that I tend to have 
speculative concepts. Um, and I found that a couple of things sort of function very much like speculative concepts to me. And that is um, true historical fiction or like in the case of, of Cherish Ferris, something like social horror, because there's almost a dual world, a two world reality happening. There are um, multiple, multiple realities happening at one time in those uh, in those stories as well. So in terms of whether something is adult or young adult, it really has to do with who my actual target audience is. It really doesn't have very much to do with the story. When I'm writing young adult, my target audience are teenagers. Mm-hmm. It's teenage black girls. Um, it doesn't matter who else reads YA. That is the actual target audience of YA. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, my my outlook and my care for the reader is completely different when I know that I am specifically writing to a black teenage girl. Um, again, it doesn't matter who else is reading it. That's that's what that's what causes me to um, take care with them and take care with the the things that I choose to present, how I choose to present them. Now, obviously, because they're black American girls. Um, they are aware of certain things that are heavier and and more um, destructive than other people. But I also don't intend to simply regurgitate that back at them. That doesn't serve any purpose except to traumatize. So I'm always um, trying to illumine something, give them language and um, basically edify them just in their identity and as people and, and to, and the story, and, and I'll know that because the story inherently has some some of that in it um with cherish farah you have two 17 year old girls but it's really obvious that the target audience are not teenage girls this is not um sort of an edifying story (laughs) um it's not meant to be like i just want you to know you're seen i mean yeah if you are a a psychopathic teenage black girl I, i do see you but i'm not trying to like encourage anything in particular um which is the difference for me between adult and YA is with, with adult, I trust that I trust the reader um, also because I don't buy their excuses. So, um, (laughs) you know, as, as we were talking about earlier, I expect the reader to show up with their brain turned on and I treat them like they did that. And I am less explicit um, probably in my adult, even then my YA but I'm very, I'm very much aware that this is that my target audience is an adult reader, and that I, I trust that they can close a book. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't take the same kind of care. It doesn't mean that I'm reckless, but I, I certainly don't take the same kind of care that I do with a young adult audience. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's really interesting. I think like never having written. YA, like as an adult writer, you do just kind of, it's like you're entertaining or you're provoking or you're whatever, but you're not necessarily trying to, I mean, YA is certainly not about imparting lessons, but it's like more important to take care of your reader like that. And there's a lot more, um, not rules exactly, but like guidelines to make sure that you're, you're treating them. Well, I don't know if those guidelines really exist because I don't know if other if other writers even do it anywhere close to the same way that I do. But that to me, that for me is what is what matters to yeah. me is what I'm doing is making sure that I'm taking care with them, and especially because my target audience is you know the most disrespected yeah <laughs> demographic. Um, and I it matters to me that they are seen and acknowledged and validated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I meant guidelines, not in any official sense, but I've heard from my friends who write YA, like I'll talk about, 
um, for me, it's usually a queer character because I'm I'm queer. Mm-hmm. Like I'll talk about a queer character doing something really bad. And if they're YA authors, they'll be like, well, that's like bad representation and that's not. And I'm like, well, but it's adult. So it doesn't like every one of my books are terrible. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, and we were talking, I think it was, I'm sorry, I've, I've done so many interviews today. I hope this is where we were talking about it. But we're. Um, I, I think at some point I was talking about when you have a lack of representation and then everything sort of becomes a respectability politics, mm. which isn't good because it means that these marginalized characters don't get to be real people um, because it can't be messy. They have to be, you know, you, you, you have to serve a representation purpose and that's not fair yeah. to us but and there's a reason and it's a, and, and that's why I, I get so mad not at creators but at the industry because the, the industry created this lack of of yeah. representation and inclusion that means that you are expecting me to write these very respectable and very one-dimensional characters, which in the long run, that just feeds, that might feed me today, but it's not nutritious. It's mm-hmm. not, it's not something that actually, um, that I can be sustained by. It's a very short term. You've put us in this sort of like, uh, at this deficit where we're only really able to satisfy today's needs and we don't get to build in terms of the complexity and all that, you know, the thing that, the thing that, really edifies your entire, the entirety of your, of your personhood. Um, and it gives the impression over a longer period of time to the reader that this is the right way yeah. and that there is a right way to, to be a part of this um, identity. And that also is, is a problem. So it's a very short sighted, you know, I know why it exists, but it's very short sighted and it's, it's not to the benefit of that marginalized community. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's been interesting. Again, I can only speak to adult books and like as a queer person, but like to see how that has changed because it used to be maybe there'd be like one or two queer characters at most in an adult thriller and they'd be kind of like the best friend and not be very dimensional. Right. And now we're seeing protagonists. We're seeing people who are like really messy and fucked up like thriller characters tend to be. And yeah, like that is even though it's not like a positive portrayal and I'm doing air quotes. You can't see on the podcast. You can't see our air quotes. <laughs> uh, but like, it's not a positive portrayal, but it's like showing you the full personhood and you know, yes. that queer people can be just as messy and fucked up as white women in the suburbs. who think their husbands are trying to kill them. Right. And, and that's the whole, you know, that that's a huge part of what's happening in Cherish Farah. It's a huge part of her realizing that people have very, very stunted understandings of who black girls can be. Um, And she's taking advantage of that. So what about your writing process? Does that kind of change depending on what sort of book you're writing or do you have a standard process that you stick with for each book? I do not have a standard process. And anytime I think I have a standard process, it means that's what I'm doing right now and it will change and I will completely forget that I did it some other way. So no, every book, you know, I I try to tell people, write the book the way that the book needs to be written. Um, Because for me, it's completely different. And I don't, I don't necessarily think it's because I write across genres. I think it's because it's a different book. It's a different story. And I will probably never be a full plotter because I don't understand the point of that. I'm like, if I'm going to write it, let me just write it. Like, why am I, why am I writing all of this information about these scenes? Why don't I just write the scene? (laughs) Um, So only because it feels redundant to me. Like, I don't, I don't enjoy that. 
Um, but I do, you know, sort of, as Danielle Clayton says, the the headlights plotting where it's like, I I know, I know where I'm eventually going, or I hopefully wouldn't be driving the car. Um, and I also can see what's right in front of me. Um, so I will usually start because I have a first line and I know what the first chapter is going to be. And it's usually a, a sort of an introductory chapter. It's, um, usually I say it's introducing the character, but anytime you're introducing the character, you're introducing the world as well. Um, but I'll usually have that and I'll know maybe what the climax is, I think at the time and what the ending is. And I don't know organically what happens in the first act. And so I will write, you know, I'll make a note about those few things that I know and I'll write in what I think is the direction toward that. But part of what I love about writing is that organically when I write, a bunch of other tensions are created and a bunch of other things are revealed. And, and, um, and I want to, I want that to always be true for me as a writer. So that's always true for the reader. Mm. Um, so I, I don't want to try to know every single, every single thing that's going to happen in a book before I write it, because I feel like that means it's part, and I'm only speaking for myself. Obviously, I know a lot of people do the opposite of this to great success, but for me, it feels like um, a formula, mm. and I can't if I can't get excited about that. So, so I can't, I can't write it. Yeah, I am a plotter, but I have to admit, a lot of the time, it's procrastination because I don't like. I love to plot and I love to revise, but I hate to write. <laughs> I mean, drafting, once you get to a certain point, is pretty much the same as hell, I think. Yeah. And I feel confident in in saying that. I always say, like, you know, when you're, if you've ever been pregnant, and I've only been pregnant once, but I feel like that's enough to be an expert. Um, <laughs> when you when you get to a certain point in the pregnancy, and you're like, done. <laughs> and you've got like another month. <laughs> Yeah. And you still have like a month and a half or something going. You're like, nope, done. I'm done. (laughs) Um, That's what happens to me with drafting. And it's equally as frustrating because there's literally no fast way to to finish it. You have to still you still have to literally write the thing. And it's the worst. It's the worst couple of weeks of my life because I'm so done. And like, I know what I'm like, I'm done writing it. And they're like, no, because it has to actually all be on the page. And I'm like, but mentally I'm done writing it. And so I feel like it should just populate. And I don't appreciate the fact that I have to actually sit here and type these words. Like it sounds irrational. I wish that meant that it was going to make me like really take a hard look at myself and, and grow up. And it won't because it's an emotional experience and it's so frustrating. I hate it so much. I just get to a point and it's usually around like, 65,000 words or something where I'm just like, I'm done. I'm done. I hate this. I don't want to do this ever again. (laughs) I totally feel you. That is how I feel as well. I just think it's so rude that like we have to write all the words. I I don't know. I keep thinking I'm going to find a process at some point, like like a couple books in, you know, we are, you're very experienced. You've written many books and you just like, you would think that at some point we could find a way to make it easier, but there's just no way to make it easier. There is a book called um, Containment, uh, which anybody who's ever heard me talk will be like, why are you pretending that this is the first time you've mentioned this book? But the point is, at the beginning of the book, the character, it's a science fiction uh, novel by Christian Cantrell. And at the beginning of the novel, the protagonist who lives on like a colony on Venus, like sets up his cerebral connection to his keyboard so that he can like lay down and like write all this stuff. And I was like, 
it's the, the, the thing that upsets me about science fiction is like, when are we going to start making <laughs> the important stuff? Okay. Like how do you, why does he get a cerebral connection to a keyboard where he just think writes, but I've got to actually like type all of this out, which there's there, you know, that creates a longer process and time for you to forget what you were about to write because you were typing the last thing. Whereas if it was just like, Coming out as I was thinking it, I was just like, "What? Why? Why has that not happened?" I just if billionaires would stop like building dick shaped rockets and going to space, and they could like create these important things that we actually need. That would create be create the things we actually need. Create the cerebral keyboard, please. Like, <laughs> truly, that's fantastic. That's like all I want now. That's very similar to. I've always been very jealous of like in the Matrix when they can just upload skills to people's brains, but that sounds even better. <laughs> even better because I want the stuff in my brain out. <laughs> like, I think for all writers, it's very busy in there. Yes, I need to get it out so that I don't have to go through that period of just like feeling congested and extremely pregnant at the end of drafting. <laughs> yeah, ugh. maybe someday it'll get easier. No, it won't. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that topic, what are you working on now, if you can tell us? I am in the, it's, it's, it is all part of the writing process for me, but it's, it's uh, like I said, I don't go to the page until I have a first line. And that doesn't mean that once I write for that session, I won't be like, oh, that is part of the story, but it's not, but it's not actually the first line. Um, so it could happen multiple times. Um, Kristen's back, but we don't know <laughs> for how much longer. The <laughs> internet is being very strange today, and uh, we don't know what's going on astrologically to cause this. But we will we will carry on. So, what were we just talking about? We were talking about what I'm working on, and I was yeah. saying I'm in the brain phase of my next project. So I know what I'm going to write. It's going to be a return to speculative literary adult market, um, probably novella as my first, as my first uh, novel, uh, well, my first novella um, mem was. Um, I know the concepts, I know the characters, but it's definitely, it's, I, I go through a process where it's like um, steeping. So mm -hmm. that's, that's where we're at right now. I have a couple of times been like, oh, I know the first line. And then it's like, that's good. That's useful. It's not the first line. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm not sure when I will actively be drafting that, but I'm assuming that I'm just going to like leave myself alone about it, at least until after this launch week is, is finished. That seems like a good yeah. idea. Launch yeah. week is always just so stressful, even in this age of like electronic communication. I don't know. I kind of prefer the online launch. I know a lot of people oh, disagree absolutely. about that. Yeah. No, I do. But it also means that people know that they can pack more into your schedule because you get to do it from the privacy of your home. And I'm like, is it really privacy of my home if you're all in it? <laughs> that is a great point. That's a good point. <laughs> all right. Well, we will let you go. Um, could you just tell the listeners where they can find you on the internet? Yes, you can find me bothering Amy Suter Clark on Twitter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that is at BC Morrow, M-O-R-R-O-W. And it's actually the same handle for Instagram, but I don't, I'm just, I don't know 
what my relationship with Instagram is like. I don't know how I feel about it. Genuinely, I'm a word person and a conversation person. So just better on Twitter. And then I have a website at bethanycmorrow.com, which is pretty much just a good place to see all my book covers and click them and figure out where to buy them from. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and congratulations on the launch of Cherish Farah. It is available mm-hmm. wherever books are sold. And um, yeah, I hope you get a break and a snack now. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of Unlikable Female Characters. Don't forget to subscribe and you can also follow us on Twitter at UnlikableFCPod for updates book recommendations, and angry feminist rants. Our website is unlikablefemalecharacters.com and we're also on Instagram at unlikablefemalecharacters. Thanks for listening.